Good morning, everybody. Hello. Um, it's lovely to see you all this morning. It's um, lovely to see me too. Oh, that's nice, that. Um, it's, we're in a different venue today. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, we've been, for the Bible series that we've been doing, we've been in Seminar A, and now we have a radical change coming to Blueprint this morning. There may be a bit of, I don't know, maybe dance music or DJing or something like that. Maybe I might rap at some point, but um, we'll see. I'll just see how the Spirit leads me. Um, <clears throat> we're going to do the, the entire New Testament, 27 books, in the next 57 minutes, which hopefully will be interesting, exciting. I know I'll find it interesting and exciting, and hopefully you'll join in with me as well and at least pretend that you do. Um, how many of you came yesterday to the Old Testament? Well, well done. That's really good. That's, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, and, we, and obviously, yesterday we went through what the Old Testament says and how it anticipates what is to happen in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the kind of expansion of Christianity around the world. So... Um, just to say, for those of you that have not been to any of my seminars yet so far, I'm Chris, um, and I'm from uh, Salford, just near Manchester. Woo! And there's quite a few woos then. Hello. Come in and say hello to me later. Um, and I, just, I could feel like the anointing from that area there. There's just a, the real presence of God there. And um, yeah, and I lead a, li a little church there um, in a quite a deprived area in Salford. And we've been doing that for about nine years now, and it's great. Um, but today we're talking about the New Testament. And so yesterday, we kind of left things at the end of the what, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And it was basically the people of God had, you know, God had created the, whole, the world. I won't tell it all again because that would be annoying for you. You're here to hear the New Testament. But actually, the, uh, God had created the world. Human beings had messed it up. And God was, was, was having uh, anticipated, uh, in, implemented this rescue plan. A rescue plan that began with Abraham and his descendants. And that they were to be the people who would go into the world and be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so the Old Testament is the story of the, of the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, trying to find their way in the world, trying to be a, a, an unusual people in the world who would testify to God's glory. And that's where we kind of left it. And, and, and the people were given a land to live in, but then because of their sin, they were kicked out of the land. And that kind of summarizes most of the first three bits, really. And, and the kingdom of Israel divided into two, and they kept rebelling against God. And all these prophets came and warned them, if you don't repent and come back to God, then you're going to be kicked out of the land. And the people don't repent. And so they get kicked out of the land, and, the, and armies come and invade the two cities of the, in the north and the south. And the people go into exile for 50 years. <clears throat> and then the people are allowed back into, exile, in, into, the, into the land after 50 years under King Cyrus. <clears throat> but the problem is that they're ruled over by other by ruling other different nations, whether it's the Babylonians or the Persians or at the time that we come to in the New Testament, the Romans. And they're crying out to God and they're saying, how long will it be, God? When will you fulfill the prophecies? When will you fulfill? When will God return to the temple like Malachi and Haggai said? When will our king come to us riding on a donkey? When will a spirit pour, be poured out on all flesh, as Joel said it would be? When will the kingdom be the Lord's? 
like Obadiah said, and all these prophecies, when will this servant come that Isaiah talks about? Well, who's this son of man that Daniel prophesied about? And they're holding on to all these different things um, that, that the prophets spoke over, you know, hundreds of years before, and the longing and the hoping. And, and we get to this point where the groups, they've basically split up into different denominations, if you like. So some of you here are Anglicans, some of you are Baptists, some of you are Methodists, different types, uh, all right, <laughs> um, and uh, different types of, of Christianity. And, and by the time of Jesus, the Jewish community was, was split into different types of people, different denominations, if you like. And, and all of them were trying to cope with this thing of why has God not come back to the temple? Why has God not delivered us from the enemies? It's been 400 years um, since we returned to the land, but we're still oppressed. And, the, and, and different ones of them responded in different ways. And you've got kind of four main groups. Uh, can anyone name any of those groups for me, actually? Who's clever? Go on, William. No, but that's a good guess. Thank you. Any, anyone else? Yeah. Sorry? The Zealots. Is that what you said? So there's the Zealots, okay? The Zealots decided that the only real response to the, the fact that they were oppressed by their enemies, the only way that they could cope with it is to rebel against the Romans and to kick them out by force. So they were always looking... They were kind of like a guerrilla group. You might call some people would call them a terrorist group that within within the nation, and they would they would kind of assassinate people, and they would always be looking for a great leader who would come and lead their army and tell them to take up the swords um, and follow them, and, and and so they were they were anticipating this great leader. Now, if you imagine when Jesus turns up and he says, "Take up your cross." <laughs> The zealots are thinking, that's not a very useful thing to take up. We want you to sell us to take up our swords. And Jesus says, take up. And he's, Jesus has gathered all these thousands of people who follow him around and he feeds them. And, and, and the zealots are hoping and praying that this is the one who will say, take up your swords and follow me and we'll kick the Romans out. And Jesus doesn't do it that way, does he? Who else is there? What other groups are there? Anyone? There's, a, there's at least two others that are mentioned in the New Testament. The Pharisees, thank you. The Pharisees were, um, were the kind of the biblical scholars of their day. So they were, the, they were full-time biblical scholars. They would, they would memorize virtually the whole of the Old Testament as part of what they did. Um, there were about 6,000 of them probably at the time of Jesus. And they were quite well thought of. Um, despite the stuff that Jesus says about them, in general, the people respected them and thought they were great. And their reaction, their solution, if you like, to the fact that they'd been oppressed for 400 years and, and more, was that they thought, if we could only obey the law fully, if we only could be a holy and pure people, then God will deliver us. So the problem for them was that they, they weren't obeying the law. And so the Pharisees developed all these extra explanations of how we can obey the law properly. So, that, that, you know, when it says in the Ten Commandments that you should observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, well, the Pharisees developed a whole bunch of things. That, what does it look like to keep the Sabbath, to do no work on the Sabbath? So they would say, you can move an old lamp on the Sabbath, but not a new one. You're allowed to move, um, you're allowed to walk for a certain amount of paces, but nothing more than that. And so they would come, they, they kind of came up this massive document called the Mishnah, 
uh, and that was like a commentary on the Bible, um, on the Old Testament Bible, and, um, and that was kind of these extra laws or rules, if you like, to try and help people to know what it was to not to not do any work on the Sabbath. And then they developed these 72 volumes called the Talmuds, which were kind of commentaries on the Mishnah, which was, so they were kind of commentaries on the commentary of the Bible. Uh, and, and, it, and it kind of expanded like that. So there were so many laws and rules uh, that it actually, they were trying to make things accessible and helpful for people, but it came some, actually became the opposite. And Jesus had some quite harsh words uh, for the Pharisees, but the Pharisees developed a belief that you could encounter God, not just in the temple, but around the scriptures in the law, in the Old Testament law, by obeying the law and by getting into the scriptures. And that might seem utterly irrelevant and boring for some of you, but it's a really important development in Judaism that also could prepare the way for Jesus. So they, they would they would believe in that you didn't just have to go to the temple to meet God, but you could meet God around His Word, as well. Uh, so that was the Pharisees. Anyone know what the other group that's mentioned in the Bible is? The Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the ultra-conservatives. Um, they were kind of the ones who went around with very serious faces, looking a bit grumpy. They only believed in the five, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only accepted them as authoritative uh, scriptures, um, and, and they didn't believe in life after death which was a, for, for the other Jews was a key belief, the belief in the resurrection, but the Sadducees rejected that idea. They thought it was all about God meeting us in the present, and when we die, then that's it. Um, and the Sadducees' solution to being oppressed by the enemies was basically to try and get in with them. So they got themselves into positions of power. They made compromises in their faith, and so they were the powerful ones. So if you imagine, and there were a very small group of them. So if you imagine when Jesus turns up, and he's a new king, and, and, and people are proclaiming him king and, and thinking he's the, he's the Messiah. They're just thinking, oh dear, this is another Jewish person who thinks he's a Messiah, and actually he's just a very naughty boy, for those of you who like Monty Python. Um, and, he's, um, and actually he's just going to stir up trouble, and we've got in with the state here. We're kind of working with the, with, with the Romans, and we're, we can influence from our positions of power. And so, they're, and so they're threatened by Jesus, and, they do, and Jesus is raising people from the dead, and so they're a bit like, that's not right, that doesn't happen, and Jesus is talking about something beyond the grave, and so they're threatened by him. The Pharisees were fascinated by Jesus, actually, because he was, um, it's possible that even, he's, he's related to some Pharisees, but also he was someone um, who was doing miracles all over the place, and they believed that miracles were a sign of God's favor, and yet he broke the Sabbath. And so how can these two things happen at once? And so you, you, there's a whole mixture of emotions with the way that the Pharisees would have seen Jesus. There's one more group that are not mentioned in the Bible. Um, but does anyone know who they are? The Essenes. Well done. And so the Essenes, their solution to the answer, their answer to the, the problem of being oppressed by the Romans was that they, they withdrew into the desert. So they formed like kind of monastic type communities in the desert. And they withdrew from society and they said, we don't want to have anything to do with the things that the Pharisees do they're because they're, they see, you know, they're, they're compromising the faith. And they kind of had some things in common with the Pharisees, but they said, we've got to form these pure, untainted societies where, um, where people can just live out their life and not be affected by the evil world out there. And they were waiting for a Messiah to come who would deliver them. 
and they were hoping and they were praying. It's actually possible that um, John the Baptist might have emerged from within the, the Essenes. Because, you know, John emerges in the desert and um, the Essenes lived in the desert. And also they used to baptize people in water for the forgiveness of their sins. And, so, and, and that's what John comes and he stands in the desert and he's doing that. And, they, and also, because John's parents were very old when he was born, <clears throat> it's quite likely he was an orphan from a young age. And the Essenes were very well known for taking in orphans. So there's quite a strong idea that John might have emerged from the Essene community, which is just a little bit of historical interest, mainly for me. You might find it boring. Uh, but that's the, that's the kind of religious situation at the time of Jesus. Politically, they're oppressed, they're longing for a deliverer. Religiously, they're split into these different groups. And they're longing and they're saying, God, when will you come? When will the pro- words of the prophets be fulfilled? And the, the prophets who began, if you like, with Elijah and Elisha and went through all of the great major and minor prophets. And there's a man who stands at the end of this line of prophets, all of them who've spoken. And each one of them stood hundreds of years before Jesus and they all pointed to the future. And they all said, there is someone coming. There is a servant coming who will be all that Israel should have been. There is someone coming who will take our hard hearts and make our hearts of flesh and fill us with the Spirit again. There is someone coming. And all of them would point and they would say, in this day you must do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. But there is someone who will show us how to do that. There is a person who will personify, if you like, all of what Israel should have been. And then a man stands at the end of this line of Old Testament prophets, all of whom were quite strange people and did rather odd things. And this guy stands at the end of that line and his name is is John, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is like, if you like, the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though he's in the New Testament. And and he stands at the end of this great line and he comes, Jesus said, in the spirit of Elijah. And so he's he's in the spirit of the greatest, the first of the prophets. And he stands at the end of this line and he says, and all of the others said, there's someone coming. And John does it as well. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the incredible thing for me, I'm so jealous of John. And John stands, and you think, I think Isaiah was totally jealous of John as well. And John stands and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world walks up to him. And he says, all right, John. <laughs> I don't know if he really said that. And, and, and Jesus says to his cousin, I want you to baptize me as well. And Jesus stands in the line of sinners, the queue of sinners, who are queuing up to have their sins forgiven. And each one of them has got different things that they've done and they want the forgiveness from. And Jesus has done nothing wrong. And he stands. And do you remember Isaiah said that he was counted among the sinners? He was counted among the transgressors. You count that line. And Jesus is stood in a queue with a load of people who've messed up. And he hasn't messed up. And he walks to John. And, and the hope of the ages and all of the, the answer to all the prayers and the cries of the prophets and the people who say, how long will it be, O oh God? And, and Jesus stands there and he's the answer to all of that. The groaning of creation that Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 8. Je- Jesus is standing in front of John the Baptist and he says, baptize me. And John says, how can I baptize you? I'm not even worthy to tie your shoelaces. And Jesus says, do it. And John goes, all right. And and he dunks him under the water. And and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And Jesus launches into this incredible career for three years of healing the sick and and, um, 
and freeing people from evil spirits and raising the dead and proclaiming that the kingdom is here. The kingdom that Obadiah said is coming. The kingdom will be the Lord's. And Jesus said, it's here. The kingdom has come. Be healed in the name of Jesus. Rise from the dead. All of this stuff. And Jesus goes around and he does all of this. And it's incredible. But John is, if you like, the bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. It's good that, isn't it? Does anyone just feel a bit excited? I just think John had such an amazing thing, apart from the fact he had his head chopped off. He had just such an amazing privilege of what he was to do with his life. And so, we come to the four Gospels. Don't worry about the fact we've only got 40 minutes left, and we're not even started. Um, (laughs) No, we have started. There are four Gospels, four different stories about Jesus. What's the point of having four? Someone thought that once and tried to put all four together and take his, the best bits, his favorite bits, and put it into one. But actually, there are four, sorry. Exactly. Exactly. So there, there are different, so if you, took, you could take four photographs of me from four different angles, and they would all tell you something different about, about me. The back would tell you how bald I am. The front would tell you just I'm a really nice, friendly guy. And one side might be slightly different to the other. When I was a kid, I got beat up and my cheekbone was broken. So this, this side of my face is slightly more sunken in. It ruined my hopes of a modeling career because uh, I would have definitely had one then. I wouldn't have been stood here today. I would have been walking down some catwalk, no doubt. And, um, but actually, there are four different angles that tell you four different things about Jesus. And they all give us some, just a different aspect of the beauty and the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. So let's go through them just really briefly. Matthew. Matthew is primarily, primarily written to the Jews. We have the first three of the Gospels are what we call the synoptic Gospels, which means similar because they're very similar to each other. Um, it's most, a lot of people think that Mark was written first and Luke and Matthew used Mark um, and some of his stories because in, in Matthew and Mark you have word for word in the Greek um, whole chunks of Mark as well. So it's, well, and some people think it might have been Matthew written first, but most people would, would suggest that it was Mark that was written and then Luke and Matthew. Because Luke says, I, I took the accounts of many different eyewitnesses to form my account. Um, so one of them was almost certainly Mark. And, and Matthew's writing to Jews. He has loads of quotations from the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one that was to come. And his thing is that Jesus is the new Moses. He's the new deliverer. So in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, Moses prophesies that eventually God will raise up a prophet like him from among the people. So that's something we didn't even mention yesterday, just for you today. Uh, that, that God would raise up a new Moses. And do you remember yesterday we said in Luke 9:31 that um, that Jesus talked to Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration about the exodus that he was going to accomplish. Moses is the exodus man. And so Matthew even structures his gospel in five sections of teaching. And after the, at the end of each, five section of, uh, each section of teaching, he says something like, after Jesus had said these things, he did this. After Jesus had done this, he, he went on. And, and, he, and he finishes them very clearly at five different occasions. And he builds the five teachings of Jesus in his gospel 
in exactly the way that the five books of Moses uh, are formed. So uh, in the very structure of his gospel, Matthew is teaching us that Jesus is the deliverer that Moses spoke about. He is the prophet that was to come. Um, and, and, he has, and, he, and he tells us a story about Jesus. Think about the Moses story now. Jesus is going up a, a hill. Moses goes up the mountain. And he, and he meets God. And, G, and, and Moses gets the law. And Jesus is the one, the bringer of the new covenant. And on this hill, Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount, the, the heart of Jesus' ethical teaching. If you like, the essence of the new covenant is delivered up this mountain, up this hill, the Sermon on the Mount. And so Matthew, all the way through Matthew, you just read, you just think, that sounds a bit like the ex- that sounds a bit like Moses, that's a bit like the Exodus story. And it's really fascinating to, to have a look at that. So there's so much I could do you I could talk for hours about that. Um, Mark. Mark, like I said, was probably the first to be written. Many people think that um, it was probably dictated a lot of it from P- by Peter. Uh, because we've got all these embarrassing little stories about Peter that Mark tells us that you think, how could anyone know that unless Peter had shared it with Mark? And, and it's very likely that Peter was in prison uh, at the time and Mark came to him in prison and Peter would, uh, would share all of the stories of Jesus and Mark would write them down and form them into his gospel. If you're a new Christian or you're friends with people who are, who are wanting to get into the Gospels and the stories of Jesus, read Mark first because it's the shortest Gospel. It'll take you about an hour and a half to read. You can read it in one sitting um, and, and it's really exciting. So Mark uses all these words like, immediately this happened. Suddenly Jesus did this. And it's, really, it's kind of like the action-packed uh, one of the Gospels. It's mostly narrative rather than the teaching. Uh, and it's a, it's a fantastic, exciting Gospel. And find that the last synoptic gospel is Luke. Someone once called Luke, uh, said that Luke's gospel was the most beautiful story ever written. And to be honest, I would agree with that. I think that Luke, if I'm allowed to have a favorite gospel, it would certainly be Luke. It's just a wonderful, uh, he's a brilliant writer. The way that he crafts his gospel is just amazing. And, uh, and the, the-, the big themes of Luke are, are, are wonderful as well. One of the, one of the ways that you tell what a gospel writer is into is that you see what the stories are that are unique to him. So all of, us, all of them tell some similar stories, but then each one of them has their own focus that they love to tell you about. So Luke loves to tell us about the Holy Spirit. So if you read some things, it's like Mark tells us that Jesus was doing this and then he went on to do this because Mark just wants to get on with it. Whereas Luke says, Jesus was filled with the Spirit and he did this. And, and he says, and, and Jesus did this in the power of the Spirit. And, and Luke's trying to teach us. And if you think about the fact that Luke wrote Acts as well, which is the, 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 you know, the story of the Holy Spirit's work in the world, Luke loves telling us about the Spirit of God. He loves telling us about Jesus' heart for the poor and the marginalized and those that people hated in society, those that looked down on like women. And, and Luke loves telling us stories about Jesus eating with those people. One thing we do in our church is that every single Sunday for the last nine years since we started is that we eat a meal together. And, and we don't just do that because we like food. We do that because it's such a biblical thing to eat together. Tomorrow we'll eat communion together in that room. But, but Jesus, Jesus was always eating with people and it was such a political thing to do in the time of Jesus. Because if you had people around to your house and you were sat at the table, the most, so if I'm the host, the most important people would sit right next to me on either side of me. And then the next most important people would sit around my table. And then there would be benches 
around the edge of the room. And the kind of less important people, they would sit around, you know, the Man City fans, those kind of people, they would, they would sit around the edges of the room. And then the really, really, really unimportant people like Liverpool fans, they would sit in another room, the ones at the bottom rung of society, and they would, uh, and they would uh, be in another room with a different menu. And, and what Jesus does is he goes to tax collectors that everyone hates, and he says, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus, and I'm going to eat with you. And people go, oh, no one eats with a tax collector. And that, only Luke tells us the story of Zacchaeus. And, and Jesus says, to, and Jesus lets Mary come and sit at his feet in the men's part of the house. And they're, and they're having some food together. And everyone's like, why isn't Mary with the women? And actually, she's sitting at Jesus' feet. That means she's learning and she's going to be a teacher herself. And, and all of the things to do with that. And this is shocking that Jesus is doing this. And, and, and Luke tells us that story as well. And, and there's all sorts of extra things where Jesus does that. And I, I just love, I love the, the Gospel of Luke. It's just wonderful. There's radical teaching on money as well. Um, there's a woe for the poor, uh, for the rich, and, and, and a blessings for the poor. And, and, and Luke is just amazing. Oh, I've not got time to tell you that other bit. Come and see me after if you want to know more about that. Uh, and so that's the Synoptic Gospels. Then we go on to John. I don't know if you've ever read Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. You get to John and you think, is this like a different story? <laughs> you know, is it a different Jesus? Because Jesus seems to talk a lot, you know, a lot more. And, uh, and the problem with the, the Greek, uh, with the fact that the Bible's written in Greek, is that they don't have quotation marks. So we don't always know when, John, when Jesus stops talking and John starts to explain what Jesus is saying. As Christians, we believe that all of it's inspired by the Spirit anyway, so it all applies to our life, so it doesn't really matter. But sometimes we can, you know, if you've got one of those red letter Bibles, it looks like Jesus has just become incredibly verbose and just going on with himself in John when he's, he just used to get on with things in the, in the synoptics. Um, but John is trying to fill in a load of gaps for us uh, from the synoptics. And he's writing later, he's writing later in his life and later, slightly later in history, and he's, and, and he's trying to tell us uh, a lot of the theological implications about what Jesus has said, and he's a new creation theologian. He's someone who's telling us that actually a new thing is happening, so he starts his, do you know, what are the first words of John's gospel, does anyone know? In, in the beginning, anyone who's, you know, some people say, oh, did the, did the, um, did the writers of the Gospels really know they were writing Scripture? Well, when you start your Gospel with, in the beginning, maybe you did. You know, and, and he's basically saying, there is, there is a new thing happening that we can't explain in any other way, but it's like the first creation. It, it's the only thing that's a parallel to what is happening in the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus is the, the first creation when everything came into being. And what's happening in, in the in the death and resurrection of Jesus is that a new breed of people is being unleashed on the earth. That's me and you, <laughs> if you're a Christian. And because we're filled with the Spirit and a, and a new creation thing is happening. You remember when Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. There is, that's the new creation. And so there's this whole thing about, uh, oh, I wonder if I've got time to explain it to you. It's, oh, it's only 10 o'clock. Can I do, do a little picture for you? Right, let's see if this works. See, let's see if it works. Penultimate. Oh, right. Don't don't look at that. Um, okay. So this is my picture. Do you like it? <laughs> right. That line there. That's the that's the creation of the world. 
Some people think it was 6,000 years ago. Some people think it was 5 billion years ago. Don't worry about it too much. Um, so that's when, when the world was created. That line that I've just done at the end, that's what we call the new creation, the resurrection. The Jews used to call it the resurrection or the day of the Lord. There's loads of different ways that the, the day that God will restore all things. And, and they looked forward to this day when God would put the world to rights. Do you remember the story of Lazarus when he dies? And he's one of Jesus' mates. And so whenever Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he stays with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And, and Lazarus dies. And Martha is not happy with Jesus at all. Because she says to him when he comes, if you'd come a couple of days earlier, instead of doing all your stuff that you do, healing people, you know, if you'd come a couple of days earlier, you could have made Lazarus better. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know he will rise again in the, this is with my finger, so excuse me, the resurrection on the last day. Martha knew that the righteous dead would rise again to new life when God comes to put the world to rights. That's the, the, they were waiting for the day of the Lord. And we as Christians are also waiting for that day. And so she's waiting for this day called the resurrection when everything gets put right. What does Jesus say in response to her? Sorry? What does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> and Martha's thinking, the resurrection is this day when God was going to put the world to rights and everything's going to be okay again. The righteous dead are going to rise. And then there's a man standing in front of me saying... That's me. <laughs> I am the resurrection and the life. A new thing is that the future that you hoped for, or that you longed for, has, is visiting you in the middle of history. The, the great climactic day that you dreamed about and that you still pray about has, is visiting you now. You're getting a glimpse of it right in front of your eyes now. The resurrection has come. And, and when Jesus rises from the dead... Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits of the new creation. It's the first fruits of the resurrection. So Jesus' body, where he can, he looks like Jesus sometimes, but he can like walk through a locked door and he can appear and disappear, but he can eat his breakfast on the beach and you can touch him and he's still got his wounds. It's a glimpse of what's to come. God takes the, the beaten, the blooded, the broken body of Jesus and raises him from the dead. He doesn't throw away the old body and give him a new spiritual body that floats around two feet off the earth. He takes the old body and heals it up and, and, and kind of gives it new abilities and, and makes it into an eternal thing. And for every one of you that know Jesus in this room, that's the future that you've got to look forward to. When you die, you will not just R.I.P., Rest in peace for all eternity and float around in some ethereal heaven playing a harp and listening to you too or something. But you will, some of you, that's like hell. Uh, you will not just RIP, but you will RIG, which is rise in glory. The, the ancient saints used to have this word written, I think it's a Latin word, written on their gravestones, which, which is resurgem. And that means I will arise. I will arise. They're not just gonna, their body's not just going to rot there and then, uh, and then they're just going to be in heaven for all of eternity. But because of Jesus, because of this new creation, uh, when Jesus returns to put the world to rights, you will arise. 
you will arise again. And we can get glimpses of that future that God has got for us today. So when we pray for the sick, sometimes they get healed, don't they? And we get a glimpse of the future when there will be no more pain or sickness. Sometimes when my mates uh, who are part of justice um, organizations, when they see justice come in a, into an, an area or a country, that's the, that's the future when God will reign and ev- there will be peace all over the earth. That's the future visiting us in the present. Does that make sense? When you, when, when you uh, forgive someone that you hate uh, and two people who've hated each other for years are reconciled together and forgive each other, that's the future coming into the present. So when we eat communion tomorrow together... It's like when uh, the people of God were in the desert in the Old Testament. I'm doing a lot of the Old Testament today. Uh, consider it's a New Testament seminar. But the, the people of God were in the desert. They were, wanting, they were not in the promised land yet, but the spies went in and they brought the grapes back, didn't they? They brought the grapes back. And in the desert, the people ate the fruit of the future while they were still in the desert. You get the chance in your life to eat the fruit of the future Justice, peace, joy, healing, forgiveness right now today. And maybe God wants to meet with some of you even in this seminar um, and just give you some of that stuff. The fruit of the future in the present day. It's good that, isn't it? Don't you think it's amazing? That's, for me, that's one of the most wonderful things I've learned over the last few years. That the future visits us in the present day. We've got 25 minutes left. Are you all okay? Good. Let's go for it. So Luke writes the book of Acts. Let's just get rid of that rather silly thing. Um, he, he writes the book of Acts, and, and the prophecies begin to be fulfilled from Joel, don't they? The Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And they're, sta- and they're sat in this room, in this upper room in Jerusalem, and they're scared because Jesus has gone. He's ascended to heaven, and they're thinking... It's not that good without Jesus, but Jesus has said to them, it's better for you that I go away. It's actually better. You know, I'm so jealous of John and all the people who used to know Jesus. And in, in John chapter 1, 1 John 1, he says, um, the, the, the word of life who's, who we've touched with our hands and we've seen him with our eyes and, and the wonder of that. But Jesus said, it's going to be better for you that I go away because the Holy Spirit will come to you. And so they're waiting in this room and they're praying. And I always imagine them just in a little circle like our boring church prayer meetings that you have and you're all like in that hairdryer position, you know, the hair washing position. And, and then suddenly like Peter looks up and he looks at John and, he's got, and he goes, you've got like um, something on your head, <laughs> like this kind of fire. And John goes, oh, so have you. And then they look around and they've all got this fire on their heads. And, and then there's this weird sound of rushing wind. And, and then Peter starts speaking in this language that he doesn't know what it is. And it might be Japanese or French or something. And, and then someone else starts speaking another language. And, and they all start piling down the stairs. And there's 3,000 more. There's thousands of people in this, in this square. And, and they all start gathering around these men who look drunk. And, and Peter's like, do you remember all that stuff that Joel said? We're not drunk, by the way. Uh, you know the things that Joel said about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh? Well, th- this is it. This is what it looks like. And, and I'm speaking in this language. You don't even understand what it is. But you can understand me there and that group of people. And James is saying this, and you can understand him. And, uh, and, and, and the people gather, and then they're cut to the heart. And they say, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and, and the people, 3,000 of them join the community. And Luke tells this story of the gospel going out from Jerusalem. And it goes, into, goes to all of the ends of the earth. And 
by about chapter, and Peter becomes one of the main leaders in the church, and James as well. And then we, uh, from about chapter 9, we get the story of Paul, well, Saul, who becomes Paul. Um, and, and Paul is converted in this dramatic way, and he's the guy, really, more than Peter, who stays in Jerusalem most of the time. Paul's the one who takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what we have from Romans to Philemon is 13 letters written by Paul. 13 letters in all in a row. We've got 27 books, so Paul writes 13 out of 27 um, of, the, of the books of the, the New Testament. And we'll just go through some of Paul's books quite briefly. They're not actually books, they're all letters. Because Paul goes around planting churches all over the show. I've, been, I've planted a church nine years ago, and it's flipping hard work. He went to a, a, he went to a place for... Two, two weeks, plants a church, gets off somewhere else, goes on a cruise to Crete, plants another church, and then he goes somewhere else, and somehow it, it kind of works, and, and, and the problem is that all, they all have all sorts of issues, so Paul has to keep writing them a load of letters, it's a lot, a lot easier these days with emails, but um, he has to write them a load of letters, Unfortunately, we've got 13 of Paul's letters where he gives these churches advice. So Romans is kind of his magisterial, um, the longest letter that he writes. It's a, it's a really summing up of how sinful people can get to know Jesus Christ. Why God has allowed the Gentiles in on the plan of salvation when, most, when the guys thought it was just about the Jews. Actually, it's for the whole world. It always was from the time of Abraham. It was never just about a certain people uh, getting a privileged status, but it was always about the whole world. You'll be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so Paul is teaching them there about that. And then Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Now the church in Corinth are the type of guys who would love coming to Soul Survivor. And they'd be the ones that, you know, in the main meetings when they do the stuff at the end, the ministry bits, they'd be the ones who are like falling over, flying around the room, speaking in all sorts of weird languages, shaking, you know, clucking like chickens. They loved all that stuff in Corinth. And, um, but the problem was that they loved the, all of the weird stuff, but they, they were a bit like in, in quite a lot of sin. <laughs> uh, and they didn't really live very moral lives. And so there was a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law and there was all sorts of bizarre things happening. Uh, and, the, and when they had communion together, they would all get drunk on the communion wine. And, and there were people who were really poor uh, who would turn up and they wouldn't get any food. And there would be these rich guys on a table all having a laugh and drinking all this, uh, this wine and, and, and having this fine food. And, and Paul says, and Paul gives them this teaching 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14 on spiritual gifts. They're like the big things that we look at when we think about the gifts of prophecy and tongues and, uh, and all of that stuff. In the middle of four, 12 and 14 is 13, the famous chapter that you always read out at weddings about love. Paul didn't write it in the first place about weddings. He wrote it about if you want to get into the things of the Spirit, these spectacular power gifts, the heart of it has to be love. Love for each other, love for God. Otherwise, you're all over the place and you're going to be loving everyone <laughs> um, in all sorts of inappropriate ways. But actually, if we, if we love God with all of our heart, mind and soul and strength, love is patient, love is kind, love looks out for people, love puts others first. And that's what Paul's telling the Corinthians in his first letter. And in the second letter to the Corinthians, they were getting 
influenced by these guys who called themselves the Super Apostles. And that was their name. I imagine with, they had suits and everything, like Lycra suits, and, um, and, and they were going around with a cape. And, and, they, and they were basically boasting about all the miracles that they did. And they were like, yeah, check me out. The other day I did this and that and that, and, and this is what I did. And it was all about them. It was all about their, their Super Apostleship. And Paul goes, right, I'll tell you about, I'll boast as well. They're boasting, I'll boast. I'll boast about my weaknesses. I'll boast about all the nasty things that have happened to me when I've been serving God. I'll boast about the fact that I'm not really very good at speaking. I'm a bit scared, I get a bit scared at times. And actually, I'm incredibly weak. (laughs) That's what I'm going to boast about. Because in my weakness, God is strong and God is glorified. And if there's something that the Christian life's all about, it's that in our weakness, God is strong. And that in our in our evil and and sin, God loves us and God comes to us and he heals us and he cleans us up. And that's what 2 Corinthians tells us. Then we get to Galatians. Galatians is like a mini Romans. If like me, you struggle sometimes with Romans, read Galatians and it sums it up a little bit clearer. They've got this group in Galatia who call themselves the circumcision group. I don't know about you, but I would not join that group on Facebook um, and, and so they're basically saying, if you want to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. You have to go through all the rites, the Jewish rites, including circumcision. And, and, and Paul's saying, do you know what? That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about the outward appearance, but it's about the heart. It's about having faith in God through the grace that he offers us and being forgiven. It's not about things that we do to our bodies. It's not about things that we do from the outside. It's about our hearts. And that's what Galatians teaches us. Ephesians. Ephesians is like a classic Paul letter because it has six chapters. And three of them, the first three, not that Paul wrote it in chapters, but basically the first half of Ephesians is all of this great theology about our position of Christ, in Christ, about that we're exalted with, a, uh, you know, with, God, with Christ in the heavenly places. And, and, all this, and, and before the beginning of time, we were chosen. And, and then in the in the in the, fine, in the second section of the book, chapters 4 to 6, it's all about what that looks like in practice. So here's the theology, but what does it mean in your family? What does it mean in your workplace? What does it look like when the devils oppress, kind of come in to t- tempt you? How do you fight uh, against the devil in your life and how do you win? And also Philippians does a similar thing. Paul's in prison when he's writing the letters to the Philippians and He writes this letter, which is known as the letter of joy, because he keeps saying to everyone, he's about, he might be about to die, he doesn't know, and he says to people, rejoice. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. (laughs) You know, and and he's just saying, there's so much to rejoice about. I'm chained to this wall. I might be about to get my head cut off or be crucified or whatever, but actually, we've got so much to rejoice about. What have we got to rejoice about? Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, he says that Jesus though he was in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. You know, and because of that, God exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we can rejoice in the hardest circumstances. That's why we can rejoice when we're facing death, because death is not the end. Death is not the end for us. Colossians. Colossians is like a smaller Ephesians in many ways. And, it's, and again, it's the two chapters of 
brilliant theology um, written to correct some kind of heresies that were in the church in Colossae. And then chapters three and four are just amazing application. I would like to challenge you, if people who like a challenge, to memorize Colossians 3, 1 to 17. 17 verses. It'll take you about an hour to memorize it. Say it several times a day. Say it every day for a week. And get a group of you together and say, we're going to do it together because you won't be able to do it on your own. We're going we're gonna to challenge each other that one Sunday we'll set the challenge. The next Sunday or whichever day you want, you're going to say it to each other. And, and you will be able to do it. You can, it's, it's not hard to do. It just means you, it takes a bit of work. And that stuff about taking off the old self and putting on the new self, that will go deep within you. It'll go deep within you and it'll transform you. You'll find the Word of God. It says in that, in that section, actually, I think it's 15 or 16, it says, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. And we need to let God's Word dwell in us richly. If we're, if we're struggling with sin, it says in Psalm 119, verse 11, that I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Word of God helps us to not sin against God. And so let the word of God dwell in you richly. Verse 17 uh, says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Imagine what it would look like just to dwell on that one verse for a week. Whatever you do, or just today, think about it all today. Whatever you do today, whether in word, things you say, or deed, things you do, do it in the name of Jesus. (laughs) When you're all tired because it's day four and you've not had much sleep because it's been raining, what would it look like to everything you say and do before you do it or say it, think about, is this in the name of Jesus or not? Just go over it in your head, chew it over and think, how could God transform me in that way? Memorize the scriptures, it's a great idea, but that's another seminar. Um, One and two, Thessalonians teaches us that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. It's not the end We're not waiting in vain, but Jesus will come and he will deliver us. And then we get on to the pastoral letters. Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Paul's writing not to churches, but to individual people named in the title of the the letters. Timothy is a young leader, although possibly he might be in his early 30s, which helps me to not feel too old. Um, and, And he's... And, and Paul is going to hand over much of the leadership of the church, his churches to Timothy when he dies. So Timothy is a brilliant book uh, letter on either on, if you're a young leader to read it and give you advice on how to be a young leader, or if you're mentoring younger leaders, it's a great book to uh, letter to read in that way as well. Timothy is shy, he's young, he's often ill, and Paul gives him all sorts of different bits of practical advice in how to deal with those things and fulfill his calling. Titus is possibly Luke's brother, and he's leading a church on the island of Crete, which maybe some of you feel called to one day, I'd love it. Um, and, 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 And Paul's giving him advice about how to disciple the people of Crete without kind of changing them into something that they're not. How do you disciple a group of people without squashing the culture that they have? Um, and then Philemon, which is all about forgiveness, you know, that slave Onesimus who runs away. And, and Paul says to uh, Philemon, accept him back, but not as a slave, but as a brother, as a brother. And don't, you know. And so Paul kind of towers over the, old, the New Testament in a similar way that Moses does uh, in, the, in, the, in the old. Paul towers because he writes so many letters. And then we get to Hebrews which some people think that Paul wrote, but most people don't think he wrote it. It's not, there's no title to it. There's no name on it, so we don't actually know. Um, 
But Hebrews is a little similar to Romans in that it's about how all of the Jewish law and the Jewish practices fit in with our faith today, with the Christian faith. Uh, just to say, all of Paul's letters were written within about 20 years of Jesus', Jesus death. Um, and, and the other letters are all written by key leaders in the Christian church. So Hebrews is about having faith and persevering. So if, you, if you're struggling to keep going as a Christian, get into Hebrews 11 and 12 and, and be encouraged by the example of the great men and women of faith um, in, the, in the Bible. Then we get to James, which is written by Jesus' half-brother. Um, so as in the son of Mary and Joseph rather than the son of Mary and God. Um, and so James was uh, a key leader in the early church. Obviously, if you're Jesus' brother, you're going to get quite a lot of respect. Uh, but James thought Jesus had gone insane. I suppose you would if your brother started saying he was the son of God <laughs> and then all of that stuff. Uh, but Jesus, James at the time thought he was a bit mad. And then, it's, and then Paul tells in 1 Corinthians 15 that... Um, that Jesus appeared to James when he was rose from the dead. I just love to imagine that scene because me and my brother, we're always really competitive with each other. And just imagine your brother coming and he's you've seen him die and you're really gutted about it. But then it kind of proves the point that he's not really the Messiah because he died. And then Jesus turns up and he's like, all right, our kid, <laughs> you know, how are you doing? And he's just like, oh, you were the son of God after all. And, uh, and James becomes a key leader in the early church. Martin Luther, who's the great reformer, he hated the, um, the letter of James because he thought it was like opposed to all of the things that Paul taught. Because Paul said, it's about grace, it's not about works. And James says, but faith without works is dead. And that, but basically, James is just saying, okay, yes, it's all about faith and, uh, and the grace that God gives us. But if, if, if you love someone and someone um, changes your life, you want to do stuff for them, don't you? So if, my, if I don't do anything for my wife, if, if I never bother with her, then my love for her is dead, isn't it? Because, but I just naturally want to please her, I naturally want to do, and, and when you have faith in God, you just naturally want to do stuff for God. And that's what James is telling us here. Martin Luther said, I will not have it in my Bible. That's how much he detested the, the, the letter of James. Uh, but it's like, a, James is like a, the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's, very, it's loads of little phrases, and uh, like at the end of, I think it's James 3.17 or something, where it says, peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. And you think, that sounds a bit like Jesus. And then you think, actually, James lived with Jesus for like however many years. It probably is a saying of Jesus. And he just chucks in all of these proverbial type sayings. And it's really interesting, the, the letter of James. Then we get to Peter. Uh, Peter's all about how to uh, cope with persecution and suffering. So when you're being persecuted for your faith, not that many of us are particularly, but uh, those of you that are finding it difficult to be a Christian, how do we remain focused on the mission that God has given us um, whilst also coping with, uh, with persecution? We're nearly there. Then we get to the letters of John. I just did this thing on one John um, in like the, in the in the Greek. That makes me sound dead clever, but I'm not. Um, and we and it's amazing the Gospel of John because it's so black and white. Like it's like you're either alive or you're dead. You're either with God or you're opposed to God. And 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 he's really black and white like that. So sometimes you read John and it feels like he's giving you a good slap around the face uh, and kind of sharpens you up. And maybe if you're feeling a bit fuzzy about Christ, your Christian faith and you want a bit of clarity, the the letters of John. John just socks it to you but he also says loads about love and the, and the love that God has for you so it's a and and there's a there's a, a kind of ancient tradition that says that 
when John was so old that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't really speak very much and they had to carry him around, he would carry, they would carry him up to the front of a meeting like this and, and he would just say, brothers, sisters, love one another. And that's just what he kept repeating again and again and again. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's a, it's a lovely story. <laughs> and it's probably, it's probably true. And then second to last, we have Jude. Jude is another one of Jesus' half-brothers. One slightly interesting thing is um, that most of Jude is in 1 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter, sorry. Most of Jude is in 2 Peter. So most people think that Jude wrote it first, and then Peter thought, that's good. So he nicked it and put it in, <laughs> and put it in his letter. Um, and, so it's, and so again, like Peter, it's about how do we hold on to our faith um, in spite of persecution and, and difficulties and, and, and when people try and teach us things that are wrong, how do we stay faithful to the thing that God has given to us? And finally, with six whole minutes to go, I won't even take them all probably, um, we've got Revelation. Revelation is a whole different book that you could do about eight seminars on and never really touch the surface of it. Uh, but, but in Revelation, G, uh, J, J, um, John sees this vision and it's a vision of the future. And firstly, he writes these seven letters to seven churches um, in the kind of Asian area. And then he starts to see these apocalyptic images. And I said in the Bible interpretation seminar on the first morning that the apocalyptic writing that John does here is a common thing in, the, in that time in, in, in the Jewish people. And it, used to, and it would give people a glimpse of the heavenly battle that's going on. So you would read the apocalyptic thing, and you might be really oppressed for your faith. Obviously, at different times, the, the people of God were, were killed for being Christians, and they would read the apocalyptic thing, and all these crazy figures like these seven-headed dragons and, uh, and things with all eyes that moved in four different directions, and they would read it, and they, and they would read about a beast that was defeated and, and slain, and, and, it would, and it would confirm to them that actually, despite what it looks like with my eyes, God wins in the end. God will triumph in the end. They didn't, or they didn't read it as a chronological countdown of the last days as in, in, in itself, but they read it as something that would build up their faith. For me, in my opinion, and um, I'm totally might be wrong because, you know, you can, there's so many books on Revelation, and if you want to write a book that sells a lot of things, then just write a book about uh, who the Antichrist is, uh, who's living in the world today or whatever, and loads of people will love it, and you'll get your own program on, the, on Christian TV. And, um, <laughs> but actually, for me, Revelation is something that applies to every generation. When we talk about tribulation, wherever you are, whichever, you can pick any point in the last 2,000 years, and the church of God has been going through, in some part of the world, a tribulation where they are oppressed, where they are persecuted. Wherever you go at any point in history, there is what you call antichrist, people who are opposed to the work of God, whether it's a system like communism, whether it's an individual like Hitler, you, there, there are things all over the world in every generation where there is antichrist which is working against the church. There is also Jesus reigning over his kingdom. Um, and, so the, and so right now, Jesus is reigning over his kingdom. And it feels sometimes when you look out in the world, you think, well, where's Jesus reigning there? What's it up to? But you can find it because you can find it when people are getting healed. You can find it when people are doing justly, when peace comes to Northern Ireland, when peace comes in South Africa, when, when wars cease, the kingdom of God is coming. When, when people start to look after the world instead of 
pillaging the world and destroying the world with our waste and with all the stuff. That's the kingdom coming. That's the kingdom coming when we become responsible and wise stewards of the creation. When the sick are healed this week and we see that stuff, the new creation is coming. The kingdom is coming. And that's what Revelation teaches us, that, that God, that Jesus one day will return and every eye will see him. And, and, and he sees, and John says in Revelation 21, I see a new heaven and a new earth. But you can also translate that as, I saw a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. God is not going to get rid of the earth and chuck it away and start again. But God is going to renew the earth. Like Jesus' body was not thrown away and he became some kind of ghost. But the body of Jesus was healed and renewed. And God's going to do that with this creation that we have messed up. God is going to do that with the earth. And we will reign with him in our resurrection bodies on, on a renewed earth, in a renewed creation, where there will be no more crying or pain or sickness or death. The old has gone, the new has come. Revelation 21 verse 5 says, Jesus says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. That's what it says in, in Revelation 21 verse 5. Jesus is in the process of making you new. He's renewing you. Jesus is in the process of renewing this world. And when he comes, you know when Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That's not just an individual promise for your life, but it's a promise for the whole of the creation that when Jesus returns, the good work that he began in creating the world, that he continued in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he continues in your life and in my life, Jesus will bring it to completion, and we will reign with Jesus on a renewed earth, uh, and we will and in, in peace and justice and joy and love. Those of you that have got friends and family who are sick, who, who may be dying, you will see them again when Jesus returns. You will see them again, and we will reign with Christ together. And Jesus is making all things new. And that is the story of the Bible, that the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And you might get glimpses of it today. You might get glimpses of it in your lifetime. But I promise you, you will see it in the end. And you will look and you will say, God, you are good. God, you are glorious. God, the plan that you had for this creation has worked and you will rejoice with God. One of my mates um, that I had, he died when he was 21, my best mate. And I know that I'm going to see him again. I know that I'm going to play football. Or hopefully I can. I don't know if there's football in the new creation. There's bound to be, isn't there? But um, I'm going to play in a band with him again. Um, and, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to just have a laugh with him again. And, and those of you that lost loved ones in that way, that, that, I promise you that is going to happen. Jesus will restore all things. He will keep his promises. And that is the story of the Bible. And I hope that's been useful to you this week. Thank you.